the Anesthesia Podcast. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to this Anesthesia Journal live broadcast. My name is Mike Charlesoff, and I'm an editor of Anesthesia. Tonight's discussion is all about a new Association of Anesthetists guideline on regional anesthesia for lower leg trauma and the risk of acute compartment syndrome. Pain resulting from lower leg injuries and consequent surgery can be severe. There's a range of opinion on the use of regional analgesia and its capacity to obscure the symptoms and signs of acute compartment syndrome. There is, however, very little high quality evidence to inform practice. These guidelines were developed, therefore, to provide pragmatic guidance and enable optimal analgesia and to highlight the need for careful observation for acute compartment syndrome in any patient at risk. With us today to discuss this new paper, we have one of the authors, uh, Dr. Matt Wiles from Sheffield. Uh, Matt's also an editor of Anesthesia. So welcome, Matt. With us also, we have Mr. Simon Fleming, who's a trainee trauma and orthopedic surgeon who's developed a national and growing international reputation for his campaigning work to drive cultural change in the NHS and other healthcare organisations. So welcome, Simon. And last but not, by no means least, uh, we have Dr. Sally uh, Al-Ghazali, who's a London-based anaesthetist and intensive care doctor. She's also the immediate past chair of the Association of Anaesthetist Trainee Committee. So welcome, Sally. Thank you. Um, so the first question I'm going to go to Matt as the author of the paper, uh, one of the authors of the paper, um, and this was a working party of the Association of Anaesthetists, and there were lots of authors involved, of, of which uh, Matt was one. Uh, Matt's also a trauma anaesthetist as well as a, a neuroanesthetist, and he does regular trauma lists. So Matt, why were these guidelines developed, and how did you do it? Uh, and why has there been so little published data on the safety and efficacy of analgesia in patients at risk of acute compartment syndrome? Okay. Uh, thanks, Mike. Thanks for the invite. Uh, good to be on to be able to discuss the new guidelines. I know I've been fairly widely discussed on social media already, but it's, uh, it's nice to have a face-to-face -face discussion with people about the finer points. So the association chairs a number of working parties each year with the aim to produce very pragmatic guidance. I mean, the Journal of the uh, Association's journal, um, and it tends to be, it's, a lot of the work it tends to publish tends to have a clinical focus. So this type of work, which is of interest to clinical practice in anaesthetists, is of great value, particularly in areas where there isn't overwhelming, clear, published clinical evidence on a topic. And therefore, the usual format is to take a group of stakeholders that's represented across the board, so pain society, orthopaedic society, representatives from the military, which is increasingly common, particularly for trauma cases, because we know we have a lot to learn from the military, from their huge improvements in trauma care over the past few years in conflict. Um, sit down, make an analysis of the evidence that is there, and then if in doubt, come up with some sort of consensus guideline. And it is a guideline. I always think that's important to emphasize that guidelines are by definition, not mandatory. There's no legality to these. It's not, you must do these things. It is a guide to practice. Why should we guide practice? Because actually, if we do things the same way in a lot of centers, we get better and more efficient results in patients. But that's looking at every patient in the UK and individual patients, as with any guidance, then you need to stop and think and see how it applies to your patients. So, that, so that's how it was done. Uh, an analysis roundtable discussions, um, uh, agreements, and then uh, production of some um, guidelines, which we hoped would be of use to practicing anaesthetists. How long does it take, Matt? Um, usually takes, a, uh, it varies. This, this one got massively waylaid by the small matter of a pandemic in the middle of it. Um, but typically um, 12 to 18 months, depending on the um, 
uh, the amount of literature you have to review. Yeah. And what, what do you think about the research in this area? What do you think are the main barriers as to why uh, would found it so difficult to, to do proper clinical trials? Yeah. This is, this is a good example of um, something I've been interested in, and it, it illustrates the precautionary principle of medicine well. So there's lots we do in anesthesia, and I suspect Simon might be able to think of a few surgical examples as well, of when we do things on a purely precautionary basis. In the absence of overwhelming evidence, in the absence of randomized control trials, um, and often these principles have been set in stone sometime before most of us were even at medical school and have been passed down from generation to generation. And because they sort of seem inherently sensible, they're not challenged. And anesthesia is full of them. You know, ATLS is full of them. I give you cervical spine immobilization after trauma. I give you cricoid pressure. I give you the whole concept of rapid sequence induction. I give you avoiding cannulation in the ipsilateral arm of patients with breast carcinoma for the risk of lymphedema. There's no real evidence that any of these things uh, cause harm. And actually, there's no randomized control trials supporting any of them. But it's done on the basis of precautionary principle. And I think the people who initially set these guidance out um, probably did so with the best interest of the patients at heart, that actually they felt that severe pain at that time was a good mark of compartment syndrome and that anything that would mask that might delay the diagnosis. Mm. You know, in current practice, we would probably disagree with that statement for a variety of reasons I'm sure we'll discuss later. Um, but I think that's why there hasn't been, because you need to start off with a point of clinical equipoise, and you need to be able to go to an ethics committee and say, actually, we think it's fine to do this. And it tends to be a lot of people lose their equipoise because they're challenging... Um, uh, things that are written in tablets of stone. And that makes doing research in this area really, really challenging because people don't have equipoise and they always fear by not doing uh, the established principle that they're placing themselves at risk of criticism. Uh, I guess that, that's really frustrating for, for many people, but, but also there's a lot of opportunity in there, isn't there? Because there's lots of different ways we can go about investigating things or... Uh, or, or agreeing on best practice and things. And I guess that's, uh, like, like you say, a very uh, noble aim often of these documents is to um, is to bring that mixture of um, clinical practice and experience and expertise together with what we know and what evidence we have. Well, that, I think it reassures people because they often say, well, what would the lawyer say? And this almost gives you an opinion for actually national leaders to have said, actually, we've looked at this and we don't think there's a significant risk. Therefore, if you did do this, I think that would that would have a, that would have a, a legal standing. It would give you some support, and I think that's of use for uh, individual anaesthetists when they're faced with often a challenging uh, clinical decision to make. Okay, so I'll, I'll cut to um, one of the main um, points that was uh, raised, perhaps on social media. So this this guideline was published um, a couple of weeks ago. Now uh, we did an infographic which sort of summarised those recommendations. Uh, and it was read by lots of people and retweeted lots of times and things. So it's, it's seen quite widely. Uh, but the one uh, con consistent piece of feedback um, from uh, people on Twitter, at least, was that um, there was a controversial recommendation there, which was about neither the surgeon nor the anaesthetist having the right to veto a treatment recommended by the other. Um, and obviously with consensus, the aim, but with, um, and, and it stated that the anaesthetist is ultimately deciding, should be the one who decides the appropriateness of analgesic technique. 
Um, so I'll, I'll go to um, Simon uh, and thank you so much, Simon, for for, for joining us tonight. Um, and um, um, we, we we certainly don't want you to feel as though you responded on behalf of all orthopedic um, surgeons in in, uh, in the world. Um, yes. but, um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but I'd be I'd be absolutely fascinated to know um, your take on it, really, and and how this was received in the surgical community. Um, yeah, I, I reading the guidelines myself and and when I retweet things outside of my area of expertise, like anesthesia, I tend to very much retweet in a for comment sort of way. So I I very much was like uh, ping ortho Twitter and then sat back because I very much had my opinion, but I'm aware that again, as a, as a pre-exam trainee, my opinion may be misinformed or just not well-informed enough. Um, And what I found reassuring i guess is that most people's concerns that were raised were the ones that had kind of been guddling around in my head the the biggest one i guess is is that point six is that it it reads it's the only bit of the document that i read as an outsider as slightly passive aggressive Every, everything else actually you're like well I can argue the the system issues there or the the change management issues there, you know, or that maybe, as Matt said, you know, it's a guideline, but actually what we need is perhaps a better test or maybe we, you know, and even the kind of more moral debate of sometimes a bit of, should we, should we make everyone completely pain-free or does pain tell us things? Is it sometimes an, an important diagnostic tool? Um, but that that point six, I think, was the one that most people raised their eyebrows at, um, because it it certainly had that sense of uh, if if agreement cannot be found, then the anaesthetist gets to make that final decision. And I think, just from my own lived experience, that's a very difficult thing to put down on paper, yeah. uh, because the way forward is collaboration and communication. And actually, Matt, you alluded to it. I can very much imagine in certain settings, someone going, well, as per guidelines, I get final say and kind of holding it up in the air and saying, the rules say that if we disagree, I I, I win. And I, I hate to be facetious about it but I've been in those rooms where it's like well it's my theater well it's not my theater well it's my name at the end of the bed type hierarchical uncomfortable conversations and I think there was a concern primarily around that uh, that perhaps that might fan those flames rather than encourage further conversation or some sort of compromise or or maybe just not address it at all and 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 just say we would hope that any conversations are conducted collaboratively and with respect with a patient at the centre, full stop, um, rather than that semicolon, but if you can't agree, the anaesthetist wins. Um, there was there was a, a couple of other comments. Uh, point three, um, a number of people um, on, the, on the guidelines where it said, you know, the equipment necessary to measure in, in intracompartmental pressures should be available on wards caring for patients at risk, um, should be trained in its use, um, and and we should know what to do if the measurements are abnormal. 
the issue with point three primarily is one that that these these um, measurements are done easily and that there are no barriers to it, uh, and that theoretically, when it when it alludes to patients at risk of ACS, well, that's pretty much every orthopedic patient with a lower limb injury, all lower limb injuries, uh, 17% of calcaneal fractures, 70% of long bone fractures. Um, and that's allowing for the fact that most departments will have a monitor somewhere, normally gathering dust in a locked cupboard. And, and actually it was quite a fascinating conversation for me as a trainee to watch was my more learned, more experienced colleagues having a debate that actually what we need is a better test and that there are some studies going on at the moment uh, looking at potentially using pH monitoring as a test for acute compartment syndrome because actually if you come in with a calcaneal fracture and get told, well, I need to stick this needle in your heel or in your calf um, and also suddenly you've got wards with nothing but people with needles in them, whether that's deliverable or safe because also then you're getting to the realms of converting closed fractures into open fractures and and, and it becomes a really again a a nuanced conversation um and i guess finally and i i will get hoisted by my own petard so i will beat you to it there were no orthopods involved in the development of this of this guideline the orthopedic uh, anesthetists were but we weren't um, and it it goes against um, some of our guidelines, the BOA guidelines, uh, very much, which which talks about um, uh, who should and shouldn't be doing it, and where these should and shouldn't be cared for. However, I note that on our guidelines, we involved BAPRAS, the plastic surgeons, the Royal College of Nursing, but didn't include anaesthetists or our pain management colleagues. And I think what this has highlighted is neither side has recognised that there's probably a role for a better conversation. Matt, I'm sure um, uh, we'll, we'll come back to you shortly to because uh, there's an interesting story, I think, behind that. Um, but Sally, um, I'll, I'll come to you next about how you think the guidelines being perceived in um, anaesthesia and intensive care. So just going on the point six, which um, Simon was alluding to initially, essentially the fundamental point about that particular recommendation is not undermining colleagues, which is a basic principle which we should be um, um, held to account for. So I think what the guideline was trying to allude to is that rather than vetoing decisions made by others, it's about having the discussions and having better understanding and understanding the concerns of, um, of both sides. However, I do see where Simon's coming from in terms of why the wording may have been, have caused some controversy. Um, as an ethetist, we do have the right to decide which regional technique may be appropriate, but I do disagree with the point that the anaesthetist ultimately deciding on the appropriateness, because to be honest, the decision about the appropriateness of actually performing a regional block neither lies with the surgeon nor the anaesthetist. It actually lies with the patient, which I know that paper alludes to. So ultimately, there needs to be that shared decision-making model with the patient and both the anaesthetist and the surgeons having that conversation and outlining to patients sort of the benefits, the risks, the alternatives to regional analgesia and empowering the patient to make the best choice for themselves. So it shouldn't be sort of anaesthesia makes a lot of the final, uh, has the final word, surgeons make the final word. It's just about having that honest and open discussion between the two parties 
but ultimately providing the patient with the tools to be able to make the decision for themselves. And actually speaking to some of my anaesthetic colleagues with regards to this particular point, they have, some of my anaesthetic colleagues have more experience with regional analgesia and lower limb trauma. And I've heard some polarizing sort of opinions about this particular point. Some said that they would still feel very uncomfortable providing regional analgesic options for this cohort of patients if surgeons do have concerns. And I think this is the bigger part um, or the bigger group. But there are some um, that I've spoken to that have welcomed this guidance that they feel that they may be empowered to offer and provide further analgesic options for patients where ordinarily, historically in their department, they may not have had that opportunity to do so. So I think just regardless, it's just we have to be very careful as anaesthetists that we don't use this guideline as there is a nerve and I have the right to block it but and ignore the actual um, concerns from our surgical colleagues. But I think one important point that this um, guideline actually um, highlights is that there is actually no robust evidence to suggest that regional techniques for analgesia lead to delay in diagnosis of acute, acute compartment syndrome. And it's actually really important to stress that this gu guideline actually refers to regional analgesia. And it's important to highlight it's not regional anesthesia, which is what the British Orthopaedic Association guidelines allude to. And it's important to make that distinction. So I hope that actually the guidelines would allude to or give some food for thought for anaesthetists just to think about not only whether regional analgesic techniques may be appropriate, but also the type of drugs and um, that they would use. So ordinarily, if they were using something that was a higher concentration to consider things like a lower concentration of local anesthetic, so then you can have more of an analgesic benefit rather than anesthesia. And just in terms of, you alluded to the intensive care side. So one point again from the intensive care perspective is many of our patients are sedated and don't have regional blocks, but equally they're at risk of compartment syndrome. So the question that we have to, uh, the conversation we have to have with our um, surgical colleagues is that how do we monitor compartment syndrome in this cohort? Because if we're expected to monitor compartment pressures and compartment syndrome in patients who are unable to complain about pain, which is one of the concerns that our surgical colleagues have, how we, we then have to be clear about how we can bring that back to patients who decide to have a regional analgesic block and see how we can best monitor them. I mean, there's lots of things there for you, Matt, as one of the authors to respond to. Um, and we just had a comment as well from Doc Morn on Twitter um, state, stating something that was um, discussed in one of the editorials. But Matt, perhaps you can just sort of explain a little bit about the background to that and, um, um, and why the... Uh, uh, BOA uh, didn't endorse the guideline in the end. Yeah, uh, we, there was orthopedic representation in the early stages of the committee. Um, um, Darren Forward, who I worked with in Nottingham, uh, and is very is a trauma surgeon, excellent fellow, started the process off and had it. Um, it he then had to lead the committee. Um, there was uh, a sign of miscommunication with um, uh, with the BOA um, about getting his replacement, so that wasn't entirely clear. And then when the final version came out, um, and Simon, correct me if I'm wrong, I understand the BOA sort of guidelines are um, like one of Mike's fantastic infographics, a sort of punchy um, A4 pages, is that right, with sort of key points. Um, and they felt that the, the guideline which was published by um, the association, which is very typical of theirs, was much more of a more scientific literature review type of piece. So they felt it actually didn't fit with what's, with their standard set, and there's there's, an, there's obviously um, there's obviously lots of space for any organisation having a consistent approach to how they publish their guidelines, because people get used to it. Um, and they also knew they were going to have a forthcoming one, which Simon alluded to again. So they decided not to endorse that, but but run with their own. 
And if we actually look at them both, I, I'm not sure the actual nuts and bolts of it, there's that much difference between the two guidelines. Um, I think it is largely the same points um, being made in, in potentially slightly different ways. Um, so um, perhaps this illustrates well um, the importance of good communication and actually clarity of communication. And it's always difficult when you're dealing with multiple organizations over an extended time period um, with additional clinical pressures, such as we had with the pandemic period where, where this was going on. So as in any process, there's always lots of learning um, uh, as, as to how things we would do it better in the future. Great. Um, Sally, have you ever witnessed this sort of tension that's described about, you know, provision of post-operative pain relief um, or post-fracture pain relief, and uh, especially, you know, in the form of a nerve block, um, as compared with the goals of rapidly recognizing an increase in compartment pressure um, that might predict the fear of acute compartment syndrome. Because the two, the two things seem to be um, at odds um, with each other, but um, is, is it always as straightforward as one thing versus the other, or, or, or is there more of a um, uh, common ground to be found or um, areas where we're able to find something that's more appropriate on a patient-by-patient -patient basis? I think with medicine, there's never sort of an absolute answer. There's never sort of a black or white. There's a lot of grey area, and it's all about having those common discussions. And I have seen tensions between teams with regards to use of regional analgesia for post-op pain, but thankfully it's quite rare because a lot of it is having that conversation um, and trying to understand sort of what the concerns are from both parties. And essentially both parties have their own agendas, but ultimately they have the same common goal, which is safe and effective patient care. So the question is, if you do have varying views, how do you reconcile those particular viewpoints? And in terms of just thinking about it, for me personally, I haven't actually seen very many um, regional analgesic blocks that have delayed the diagnosis of patients because I, I've, I've actually seen patients still reporting breakthrough pain. Admittedly, my sort of end number is very small, but equally, I don't see very much in terms of the evidence to suggest that sort of regional analgesia is the cause of or um, delays diagnosis to acute compartment syndrome. But conversely, I have seen patients where they're on PCA and they're on opioids and they do have a delay to diagnose and do have a delay to go to, to, to theatre but then we don't necessarily consider removing or pain relief for those particular patients because it's not, it's not feasible. And pain relief is a very important aspect of it. So I think it's just in the absence of sort of the clear evidence, um, it's important to ascertain why there may be some reluctance from some of our surgical colleagues with regards to the entertainment of regional techniques as part of the multimodal analgesia. I, I do struggle just to, to deny a big proportion of patients um, pain relief that may benefit from it for fear of complications for a few. So we're talking about, I think, about four to five percent of tibial um, fractures that result in sort of acute um, compartment syndrome. So it's a modest number, but it's not high. And so you've then got sort of 94, 95 percent of patients just sort of complaining of pain. And, and, and we need to address that. And the pain itself, we're talking about complication, which is admittedly devastating in terms of acute compartment syndrome, but severe pain is also a complication in itself that needs to be addressed. And just one thing in terms of um, going forward or to think about is that the presence of pain in, by itself is, not, is a poor diagnostic indicator for acute compartment syndrome. It's usually quoted about 20 to 25% of patients. Therefore, what is important and sort of what we need to work with, um, with our surgical colleagues and sort of with our colleagues on the ward is how we can improve monitoring modalities 
and the clinical vigilance to help provide an early diagnosis. Um, and if, if that is with routine compartment pressure monitoring and sort of using this guidelines just to be able to push that agenda to actually get better monitoring for patients on the ward, then so be it. Um, but it's important to understand and what we all accept is that patients have the right and it is important for them to have good analgesia and effective analgesia postoperatively. But I think what we do also need to accept sort of collectively is that in some cases it may involve regional analgesic techniques. So it's, it, it is a conversation. It's never sort of one or the other. It's just having those conversations and seeing what we can do to provide better patient care. And I'm just going to take a few steps back now and, and go um, to you, Simon, um, and just see if you can summarise for us. Um, it's, been, it's been a while since I've seen seen a patient with acute compartment syndrome, and, and it probably is really relevant to, to uh, areas of my practice as well. Um, so what are the key goals of management for acute compartment syndrome? And what do you think are the other factors that we've talked a lot about anaesthesia and analgesia, but um, what other things might result in a treatment delay? Um, so very quickly, this is why I love Twitter, right? Because I never would have read the difference between regional analgesia and regional anaesthesia. And it's not the kind of thing I pick up on, right? And and I, I guess what I'm about to allude to is the fact that our fear is about regional anaesthesia. And, and we... I say we, I don't understand when one becomes the other, but I fear that it might happen and mine and I might not recognize it. Because you get, for example, you know, the the stoic patient, the IVDU, the the patient with that elevated pain response, or just the stoic patient who suffers in silence while their pain is a 400 out of 10. And and that's where that analgesia anesthesia thing becomes of concern. For for us, um, com compartment syndrome is one of our is one of our you know it's the bit that gets everyone out of bed. It's the bit that gets us into theatre, no matter what time of day or night. Um, it's it's a devastating condition, whereby theoretically you get this cascade of events where you get the, the trauma from your calcaneal fracture, tibial fracture, bleeding, edema, uh, the pressures go up interstitially, vascular occlusion occurs, and you start to then get muscle and nerve death. And the goal of, of treating compartment syndrome, the goal of fasciotomies, which I guess is what we're continuously alluding to, is to relieve the pressure as quickly as possible within the realms of, you know, safety and all the rest um with the goal to save muscle nerve and artery so you know the the boa guidelines talk about what to debride and how to debride it and certainly when i reflect on my first compartment syndrome that i saw and treated it was also my first tibial nail um that i was called back to the ward for and by the time we got into theater and it wasn't that far down the line a matter of hours part of the lateral compartment very much had that look of kind of raw chicken. You could just see that it was no longer viable. And I don't think at that experience, there was any meaningful delay. It just, there was time had passed and muscle had died and so had nerve. And that's our goal. Our goal is to minimize the damage done to those, those structures and save as much as possible. Um, from my experience, uh, N equals again not not much. The most common delays in diagnosis is uh, A 
I can't believe that X or Y could cause compartment syndrome. Um, the kind of usual delays we see within the NHS uh, of you get called to see that patient and you should go straight there. But if you're seeing another equally sick and unwell patient, do you have the means to get there immediately or is there a 15 minute delay? Um, often those communication issues present themselves. So the classic thing when we, when we teach um, more junior trainees and doctors on the team, it's things like you do need to take the whole dressing off. That includes the nice bit of cotton wool wrapping their leg. Otherwise they still potentially have some form of, of, of bandage around them. Um, and then you get the delays of, of, um, of inexperience and fear that I, I experienced as a more junior uh, trainee, which is you don't want it to be compartment syndrome because that requires making a lot of phone calls and calling a lot of people and activating a lot of people. And again, you, you hear a lot of the, the Matt alluded to them, the kind of dogmatic sayings of, you know, if you think it's compartment syndrome, it's compartment syndrome. If you think you should be doing a fasciotomy, do a fasciotomy. And, and that comes back to that sort of shared decision-making of, I now warn most of my patients that they're at risk of these things, both pre, peri and post-operatively. You may find that you wake up after what you thought was going to be a small incision with bigger incisions. You, you may get rushed to theatre in the middle of the night, but our, our goal is to save limb. And if you really do miss it, and it does get missed, life, because then you get into the realms of kind of rhabdo and, and far more catastrophic things as well. And, and I, you know, in, in the, the guidelines that you've published, which again, aside from a couple of sticking points are absolutely excellent. You know, when you, when you talk to people with military experience and, and my, my master's was on comparing civilian and military management of blast injury, the, the military will say, look, of course we do fasciotomies. Yeah. So you've got, you've got scars and maybe you've got some, some split skin grafting, but equally, and again, it's alluded to in the, in the guidelines, the military model is often very senior decision makers from the get-go. So they're not humming and hawing. They can make a decision about whether it is or it isn't, whether they're concerned or they're not. They can take in all those things that as a, as a more junior doctor, you might not pick up on all those little things that go, yeah, this, this patient's going to get compartment syndrome. Um, but our goal is, is primarily to save, to save life and then, and then to save limb and, and compartment syndrome is one of those things that can affect both. Um, Simon, that's fascinating. We just had some comments from uh, some anaesthetists tuning in saying saying that as well. Amit Power was watching, and he um, said it was really, really great to hear those insights. and uh, And I think that's that's really important because there'll be some things in there that anaesthetists might not think about, and uh, and I think that's really important. And and going more towards uh, you know the sort of the model of uh, collaborative working. Um, Matt, there's a simple solution here, isn't there? Uh, to make better use of compartment pressure monitor. And I know Simon's mentioned it already. He uh, didn't seem all that keen. Um, but there's an editorial um, in uh, that accompanies the guideline that alludes to um, the high sensitivity, specificity, positive predictive value, and negative predictive value, which is very impressive. Um, so doesn't this satisfy everyone's aim? And it's a no-brainer, isn't it? And problem solved. Sounds like it, doesn't it? I mean, um, <laughs> so it's, it's certainly proponents in the places that do routinely have access to this say they see say they see a lot of benefit for it, and they say you know when it becomes part of routine practice. Um, 
it's worth mentioning that the strength of recommendation for monitoring in guidance uh, extends beyond compartment pressure monitoring. So, you know, people will have seen the um, recent association guidance on the updated um, standards for monitoring anesthesia. That is, was pretty pretty strong recommendations for quantitative neuromuscular monitoring and processed EEG monitoring, and which are by no means widespread within UK practice at all. So I think part of guidance is to perhaps provoke people to think, maybe provide them with a bit of paper to go to their finance people and say, actually, we've been wanting this kit for years. We think it's really useful. Perhaps not in everybody, but um, uh, I'm sure Simon will be able to tell us, you know, there must be patients who are more worried about than others in terms of their risk of compartment syndrome. You know, on inspection, things didn't look quite great. Struggle to close the tissues. You know, actually, I think this, I think this guy or girl could feasibly go off in the next yard. I'm a little bit anxious about this one. Um, so perhaps you could use it um, uh, in selected cases, but there does appear. I mean, given the given the proven lack of utility of clinical signs, the the the, um, the six P's, which turn out to be pretty poor predictors, as it ironically turned out, um, uh, there, there, there probably is a place, if not across the board, for the for the pragmatic reasons that Simon highlighted. You know, if you've got 32 patients on a ward of whom 70% have some form of lower limb fracture. Um, uh, perhaps that's not the solution. Um, the other thing to bear in mind is um, it needs to stay front and centre in people's mind, the possibility, and sometimes that's what monitors do. Um, I always thought the value of gel effusing on the ward wasn't that it was a particularly good fluid, because it's not, but if you said gel effusing in a ward-based scenario, everybody, all the nursing staff knew this patient wasn't very well because you only ask for gel effusion if someone was poorly. And therefore, it communicated the need for urgent activity across. If someone comes back from theatre with a pressure monitoring, I guarantee they will be looked at differently in terms of their risk. So it does help highlight those patients who are particularly worried. Not necessarily interpreting the monitoring or doing bits and pieces, but it acts as it puts it front and centre in people's mind that actually the pain they're experiencing or the tachycardia that won't settle um, isn't sepsis or as other things that people are paranoid about missing, but it could be something actually much simpler, but also much more damaging to them. Because, you know, I, I, I agree with Simon points um, very much so in terms of the, the clinical sequelae of compartment syndrome. The more orthopedics you do, so if you do a lot of arthroplasty, um, orthopedic particular revision, and you see what infection looks like in an arthroplasty, you will change your practice in terms of you understand why orthopedic surgeons are so meticulous and so terrified. And when you see a bad compartment syndrome, I understand entirely why people then look at this and go, I never want to see this again. I had a fit, well, young um, a man or woman, active in sport, sporting-related injury, who now is going to have significantly poorer lower limb function. And in many ways, that is a good example of a caution principle. I want to do everything I can to give this patient the best outcome. And, and I think, you know, we need to think about patient-centered outcomes. Sally alluded to that really well, putting the patient at the front of our decisions. Um, uh, pain, pain's almost become a sign of weakness in anesthesia. If your patient's in pain, then, ooh, Paku won't like you. Your colleagues will talk about you. Everyone, everyone needs to be beautifully comfortable all the time. Well, and a lot of our research does that. It focuses on early pain scores and how important it is that you're, Visual analog scores two points less uh, at 12 hours. But what do patients want? 
And um, if Amit's listening, then he knows how much I like short-term regional anesthesia-based outcomes. But let's talk about long-term outcomes. If I fracture my lower limb cycling, um, I want to have the surgery and the care that's going to get me rehabbed to back on the bike as quickly as possible again. That's my goal. If that means one technique will give me more short-term pain for 36 hours, 72 hours, I'm prepared to take that as soon as otherwise fit. Now, in other patients, if I was morbidly obese, opiate sensitive on CPAP, poor cough, then, then actually the balance swings completely the other way. And, and again, as Sally alluded to, this is why we need to individualize our conversations about these patients, find out what's important to the patients. And the schism that Simon alluded to, um, I do a regular trauma session. I've never seen this in trauma theaters. I think trauma, trauma conferences in the morning, um, I think they're some of the most receptive surgeons I work with. If you say the um, fractured, um, the fractured neck of femur isn't fit and warrants uh, early uh, sorry, deferring rather than early surgery. On the whole, they'll listen to your reasons and will say, okay, that's fine. Do you think tomorrow will be fine? Yeah, I think by tomorrow, uh, he or she will probably be, be good to go. Similarly, they might say, well, do you know what? Actually, she's really struggling. We can't move her. I think we probably do need to crack on today. Then I'll go, okay, that also sounds very reasonable. And I'd expect exactly the same conversation about the patient with the traumatic lower limb injury. I, the idea of playing name badge top trumps um, and deciding who ultimately gets the casting vote would just be completely alien. And I, I just can't imagine that ever entering um, my clinical practice. And it may be that I work with the people a lot um, and there are difficulties because our trauma surgeons, much as orthopedic surgeons do, have, have sort of embraced the, uh, the focus on the bone um, uh, type of attitude. It's certainly not true. Trauma surgeons are very holistic. They, they get the picture. They understand all the physiology, they do it all the time. And if they have an anesthetist parachuted in who tries to give maybe their arthroplasty anesthetic, the neck of femur, or treat everyone like an elective case, I think that I have no problem with them challenging it and just going, actually, this isn't quite right. This isn't what we think is best. Um, so yeah, it should be, it should be a, a grown-up conversation between people, which is exactly as Sally said, with the patients at the center of it and the endpoints that are most important to the patient. We, what, what we think is not as important as what the patient thinks and what the patient wants. Lots of agreement there on social media, Matt. Helen Laycock um, um, says, hear, hear, Matt. Uh, and uh, there's very little to disagree with there. I think uh, lots of um, head nodding there from Simon, which is great. Um, but Sally, um, before I come back to Simon for the last question, Sally, um, this, this is quite obviously an area where surgeons and anaesthetists probably already do collaborate quite well. And um, what other areas do you think there are opportunities to do so? So I'm glad that you've sort of asked this question. I think collaboration is just so important, and not just clinically, but sort of in the non-clinical aspects. I think sort of the collaboration sort of um, in terms from a clinical perspective, it provides much better patient care, stronger working relationship. And as I need to just, we work so closely with our surgical colleagues and it's imperative that we're all on the same page to be able to provide the better patient outcomes. Um, having different viewpoints will ultimately lead to conflict. We want to avoid those situations where one specialty says, well, my organisation says this and the other, um, the other specialty sort of replies, well, my set, mine says that. Because then after that, you then have conflict. And there's a lot of research about the fact that having sort of incivility within the, health, uh, within the workplace can actually cause a lot of issues not 
just amongst the actual department, but also with the patients itself. Um, so I think it's it may be difficult, but it's important to have sort of an agreement to be working together to result in a compromise from both sides that more pe people are willing to accept. It can never be, I have to have this all of the time, and the other specialty saying, I have to have this all the time. It's about trying to find individualized patient care, making sure that there's compromises, because ultimately the patient is, 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 is at the center of it, and that's what we will want to achieve. And I think there are just so many examples, like this particular um, sort of discussion that we've had with sort of um, yourself, Matt and Simon, with regards to regional analgesia and lower limb trauma. That's one thing that we can actually all see sort of what the issues are from both sides and sort of how we can provide better patient care. But I think you can get better outcomes with the United Front. And I'm a big subscriber to the whole um, is greater than the sum of its parts. So I think going forward, there's other aspects that we can collaborate on. And if we were to take, let's say, um, at the moment with the huge backlog of clinical work as a result of the pandemic, we have to work collaboratively. We have to have a united front. And it's about trying to think outside the box to be able to provide that. So thinking about the um, there's been examples of successful block room models and more anesthesia um, and surgery happening on a day case basis in terms of from a regional point of view. And that wouldn't happen unless you have the buy-in from both the surgical side, the nursing side, the anaesthetic side, all of these different um, model or all these different parties being able to come together. Also sort of other things that I've seen in the hospital that's worked in terms of collaboration is um, they've developed something called like a hit list, which is the high intensity theater list, which again sort of maximizes theater utilization. And again, that couldn't happen within the buy that buy-in and collaboration. And just to go back to, I've said it's not just clinical, um, it's also in terms of the non-clinical front. So I've worked very closely with Simon during my tenure as on the Association of Anesthetists Trainee Committee whilst he was um, voter president. And we were able to look on um, to see what uh, the issues were for trainees for both sides. And there were common issues. So things like issues with fatigue, bullying, undermining, pay. And working together just made that message so much stronger and clear and we're able to institute change more effectively so i think collaboration is key not just clinically but non-clinically as well that's fascinating i guess every day feels like a, a trauma list at the moment doesn't it sometimes <laughs> having to prioritize patients yeah. work out who to bring in and who's appropriate to operate on and who is and and uh, yeah so that's i've never thought of it like that so it's fascinating um, last question for you, Simon. Um, how do we move forward from here? And do you think this is going to come from uh, local multidisciplinary groups or associations or, or, or somewhere else? I mean, that's not a loaded question at all. So I'm, I'm quite glad that you've given it to me. I, <laughs> I, I'm not sure I can actually say it much better than Sally did. The, the future is collaboration. The future is not silos and colleges and associations saying we say or else, or we say this. And actually the last year, 18 months, albeit horrendous, has highlighted what we can achieve when we work together. And when we all uh, take ego and tribe and put it to one side and go, look, we've got a job to do. And, and you know, the example Sally gave, we have, we have huge surgical backlogs and we know that we're not gonna be able to get it done unless we both work together and work differently because let's not kid ourselves it wasn't like we had no waiting lists before covid <laughs> you know it's not like we didn't have yearly meetings about winter pressures that started in august um and as we go forward 
we're all going to have to stop before we do something, before we set a meeting, before we sign off on a document and go, who else should be in the room? Who am I missing? Why isn't there a patient in the room? <laughs> Where's my patient rep? Because, you know, when you start wheeling out some of the great work coming out from, from CPOC, as, as an example around shared decision-making, you know, and you start to go, well, yeah, maybe we do need to be having different conversations with our patients about what their operation looks like and what their anesthesia looks like. It probably isn't going to change the outcome of the decision they make, but we know that they're going to do better because they've been a part of it. And the team is going to just breathe that little bit easier because the patient's been a part of it. So I think going forward, we undeniably need more guidelines. We do. They should be collaborative. And, and I do believe that if you want to go fast, go alone, but if you want to go far, go together, you, you do just need to bring people along with you. And so it may mean that the next iteration of the associations and BOA's guideline on takes that little bit longer, but it will probably be that little bit better for it. And the other thing we need is, is more evidence as demonstrated by all the editorials where, where everything goes, but it's a bit unequivocal, or it's all low level, N equals four and a goat study. <laughs> and if we want to do really good, really impactful, pragmatic trials, again, it's not orthopedics doing a study on compartment syndrome diagnosis, and it's not anesthesia doing a study on regional analgesia versus anesthesia. It's people coming together and setting up a research group We're going, now let's look at the whole picture, including the patient, and find some pragmatic, useful data rather than an abstract fact that shows that if you put a needle in a compartment, it shows this. That was really great to talk with the three of you tonight. Thank you for giving up your time. And um, um, again, Matt, um, thank you for, for bringing this document to us and, um, and providing us with um, this guideline, which, which has really springboarded all this discussion, um, which I think has been really healthy and really useful. Uh, and um, the paper is free to access, as are the editorials. The editorials are, are really well worth a read, and we look forward to receiving uh, letters about those and, and seeing the discussion continue, not just on Twitter, but in the pages of the journal as well. Uh, we've had lots of live viewers tonight. We've had lots of engagement um, uh, throughout. Uh, you can watch this broadcast, um, which will be available forever, and we're going to turn this into a podcast as well, uh, which we will tweet thereafter. So thank you very much uh, to the three of you. Uh, I do hope that you enjoy the rest of your evening. Uh, it's still very nice out there. Uh, and uh, good night. Thank you so much. Thanks, Mike. The Anesthesia Podcast. <laughs>